Super Bowl hangover, 49ers fans, it's a little rough, right? Did feel like there was just too much time, too much time to go, too many timeouts, both at the end of halftime and in overtime. It was rough. You know, my best hangover cure, and this is like the worst one everyone's going to yell at me because it's it's the stupidest one to say to someone, is uh, don't drink because I don't. When I used to, I used to drink a lot. It used to be to, you'd have to work out, right? You'd have to get a workout in or else like by noon, you'd be at the office, you'd eat lunch and it'd... It all starts to settle in. I'm actually a little, I'm a little tired. We had to go to my mom's house over the, uh, the weekend there in South Carolina. So about a six hour drive went like directly after work and, um, and came back. It was really cool. But hey, what's going to happen to all of that 49er gear, right? What's going to happen to all that 40? Oh, you know what? Hold on. Before I get there, you know, it's going to be the worst championship to win. And I was thinking this last night when they went up to Andy Reid, like immediately they're pestering him and they're like, so you're going to three-peat? Are you going to do three in a row? Like you can't even enjoy this single one. He actually commented on it. He said, uh, they said, Andy Reid, are you going to three-peat? And he said, I haven't had time to think about it. But yeah, I'm mad at Bill Belichick and Pete Carroll because now I get asked all of those questions. I don't know. I don't know. I mean, I'm not, this isn't cope. I didn't have like money on this. I didn't have money on the Chiefs, but I'm just saying. I don't know. Let the man enjoy it. But what happens to all the gear, right? Because, you know, in the champion, they got the championship hat. He puts on his head almost immediately. What happens to all that gear for the losing team? So what happens to all the 49er gear? Well, Fox 59 says the NFL is working with nonprofit Good 360 again this year to keep the pre-made unused apparel out of the landfill. The organization collects the clothing items and ships them to vetted nonprofit partners across the world. This year, the merchandise is going to be going over to nonprofits in Ukraine, Mongolia, Georgia, Estonia, and Latvia. Uh, I'm sorry, Latvia. Latvia. I'm sorry. Uh, Sherry Rudolph, the Nonprofit's chief marketing and development officer says, but you definitely won't see it on anyone in America. The NFL has strict controls to ensure that the general public will never see it. So if you want to like dunk on a 49ers fan and get them, you know, Super Bowl champion shirt, you're going to have to steal one from a shipping container or maybe find one on uh, Etsy. I remember when the Patriots are going 16 and 0, there are a few people who are not Patriot fans who like to, uh, give out some of those 19 and one shirts, no comment, no comment on all that, but this is the 10 year that they've been doing this nonprofit. So, Hey, pretty cool. It's going to end up on somebody's back. Now, was there a Chattanooga tied to the Super Bowl? You probably don't think so. That's because you don't know the history of Chattanooga. You know who we claim here? Usher. Usher did the halftime show. Did you watch it? Was it good? You know who we also claim? Craig Fuller. He coined the term Freight Alley, at least according to legend. He named this place Freight Waves. He's got a little chart. He kicked the day off with uh, a tweet. And let's see, this seems maybe like it's good news. What did this man have to say? He said, one of the most important technical indicators in the trucking market has been triggered. The spread between contract and spot has narrowed to the pre-COVID range. Before COVID, the delta between contract and spot trucking rates was 35 cents to 50 cents a mile, meaning that it was 35 to 50 cents 
cents a mile cheaper to book a truckload from the spot versus contract market. Once COVID started, the market flipped and it became more expensive to book freight in the spot market. When the freight recession and collapse hit, the spread reversed to the downside and stayed at much wider ranges, suggesting that the market was nowhere in normal balance. This has corrected over the past six weeks and spot and contract are closer to converging. This suggests we are in the last leg of the current freight recession. The risk in 2H now moves to a capacity crunch over capacity weakness. Really interesting to follow this up. John Paul Hampstead tweeted, he said, talk to a uh, $1 billion freight brokerage last week who said that many of his contracted freight awards coming online on March 1st. The next month or so should see decent price movement in the contract market and the spread between um, and the spread should compress further. A little bit more here. Zach Strickland says since the start of November, net active truckload operating authorities have dropped by 9,000. That's an approximate 12% increase over the same period last year, according to Carrier Details Analysis of Federal Market uh, Federal Motor Carrier Safety Administration data. He says keep in mind only 92% of the operating authorities represent carriers that have fewer than 20 trucks in their fleet, so one authority can be a single truck or 5,000 trucks. The latter being in the gross minority. Point being, this data is heavily skewed towards small operators. Raphael says, explain this all to me like I eat crayons. Glad you asked, Raphael. And I'm glad someone smarter than me did. Zambo says, freight costs are getting back into normal range. Uh, What's yet to be seen is if it stays in the normal range or we go above it again, which during post-COVID contributed to a lot of the inflation. And then uh, Chris Agnew says, contract is a box of crayons. Spot is one crayon. Before COVID, it cost $12 to buy a box of 12 crayons. One crayon cost 50 to 65 cents each. Post-COVID boom, one crayon costs upwards of $1.10 each. Well, the cost of a box of 12 crayons remained at 12 bucks. Most recent cycle, the freight recession, one crayon cost as low as a penny, but the price has now creeped back up into the pre-COVID range of 50 to 65 cents. Inso Monty says red crayons taste the best. Might be the easiest for all of us to understand here. And Sarika says temporary bump, declining volumes, and increased capacity will return in the second half. Well, well, well. There's another article on FreightWaves.com from the great Michael Rudolph that says, despite dim outlook, January imports grew at its fastest pace in seven years. That's right. Michael says January is not typically the most active month for containerized imports, though it does benefit from the run-up to China's celebration of the Lunar New Year. During the two-week holiday, which began began on Saturday, nearly all manufacturing plants and port facilities shut down. By the way, a little happy Year of the Dragon to all of you. If you're born this year, Year of the Dragon, 2012, 2000, 1988, 1976, 1964. Very cool. All right. On today's episode of the show is episode 681 of What the Truck. I'm talking to Zeem Solutions founder and CEO. Zeem just cut the ribbon on its charging depot in Inglewood, California. We'll find out why he thinks this is the first step towards electrifying millions of trucks in the state. Uber Freight has released a scheduling API pilot for the Scheduling Standards Consortium's technical standard. What's all that mean? Well, Raj Zuba is here. He's the head of product over at Uber Freight. He's going to explain what all those words I just strung together meant, what this pilot means, and what it means for stakeholders, why it's cool. Uh, It isn't just trucks that are facing pressures from environmental interests. Container shipping is also in its crosshair. So Vessel Bot's founder and CEO is going to take a look at the data that they just did, their report on container ship emissions, and hey, maybe have some advice on cleaning that up. Got another question for you. How important are owner-operators to the brokerage model? 
Are carrier vetting solutions a real solution if they hurt legitimate carriers? Able Transport's founder and CEO, Liz Wayne, will end the show with us to answer burning questions like this. So let's tip the band. We'll get over to our first guest. I want to take a second to put these guys on your radar. Dynamic Logistics, because I got to say, they're doing logistics the right way. Their TMS software is saving shippers a significant amount of time and money. Check them out at dynamiclogistics.com. That's logistics with an X. I think we have Raj here right now. He's head of product over at Uber Freight. Raj, good to see you. Good to see you again, Tim. Thank you. Thanks for having me over again. Hey, who, who's, never, who's never caught you on here? Just introduce yourself briefly to everybody. Sure. Happy to. Uh, my name is Raj Sabah. I had um, product and data science here at Uber Freight. Um, been with uh, Uber Freight for four and a half years, and, um, and we've been one of the, co- the collaborators, the main confounding collaborators at uh, SEC as well. And so I strung together some terms there. And if no one's ever heard it, it probably just sounded like a bunch of mismatch. So Uber Freight has released a scheduling API pilot for the Scheduling Standards Consortium's technical standard. What does that mean? Yeah. So so early, um, I believe in 2020, we came together, JB Hunt, Uber Freight, and Convoy came together. And then we decided to kind of put our technical hats on and then come forward with what we called guidelines for scheduling APIs. So we recognize that scheduling is a huge issue, uh, no matter where we look at, whether it's brokers, carriers, shippers, facility managers, uh, no matter where you looked at it, um, you know, every load had to have some sort of schedule, either for pickup or for drop-off, and almost everything was being done manually. Um, even the tech, you know, within air quotes that we actually have, um, is basically, you know, some sort of a scraper um, that uh, that breaks every single time you change the UI element of the portal, etc. So what we decided to do was we decided to put forward guidelines that the, we think that the at a minimum the industry should adopt um, so that we can automate um, all of these scheduling conversations. So you're not stuck on the phone um, calling a facility, waiting for an appointment, or when a truck gets delayed, you know, we automatically reschedule and whatnot. So it opens up a whole lot of possibilities um, in the future for what that can do. And now we're at the pilot stage with this. So like, where have you been testing it leading up to the pilot? I realize that the pilot itself is part of the test, but where have you been testing it so far and what have you been hearing back? Yeah, that's, that's a great question. So um, the we've had tremendous success in terms of like getting a lot of our TMS providers to sign up. I, we, we were here a few months ago talking about how the guidelines were being adopted by some of the largest TMS providers here. And Uber Freight being one of the largest TMS providers, we decided put, to put where you know put money where our mouth is and then make sure that we implement the APIs as well. Uh, we've now implemented for our TMS. We're at over 1,500 locations. We do about 6 million appointments in all of these locations every year. And we are testing that now internally within our brokerage. Um, so about 10, uh, C- 10 of the t- largest CPG um, customers on the broker- brokerage side are now seeing the full benefits of this. They're seeing the loads go through a brokerage much faster, much quicker. And our, you know, and our carrier customers are also seeing a lot of benefits because now they're seeing a lot of the loads on the marketplace a lot faster. So they have a lot more options, a lot faster, so they can pick and choose what loads they want to move um, because of the larger quantity available. Interesting. So we've got a pilot going on now. How does that work and what do you hope to learn from it? 
Yeah, so we wanted to test, test three things. One is the if, if there are any more tweaks that we need to make to the API that we actually have. So we did find some areas where we do think we, we need to make some tweaks and we're working on that. And the second part was we wanted to actually quantify the amount of both efficiency we gain and amount of ability to buy at better market rates because there's a lot more options um, in, in the marketplace as well. So we, we're seeing large benefits there just in purely in terms of costs, you know, in human capital ca- cost, it's about $10 cheaper per load, per, per load um, if we are able to use the API versus not being able to use the API. There are other, other, you know, secondary benefits as well, meaning if the load gets delayed, we need to, you know, and if that happens over a weekend, our APIs can automatically call, um, be called, and then the uh, the appointment rescheduled over the weekend without any human intervention, which was not pre- previously possible. And the other benefit we're seeing is that for carrier customers, who ca- you know who have their schedule figured out for the week, um, they now have better options to choose from. And what we're hoping to get to at some point in time is also be able to give them the option to choose what times they're actually going to go drop off the load. Um, if, if there's a little bit of flexibility for us. Oh, very cool. Hey, Garrett Allen has a question. He said, I'm interested to hear more about the SSC, specifically how are they approaching issues he's had with EDI and one-off requirements for integration? The current standard has a lot of vague requirements for custom fields and how they are enforced. Any insight on that? Yeah, so the the, the the guidelines is not supposed to be the, you know, the end-all be-all. It is the minimum requirement you want to adopt. Um, I'm not particularly, not very sure, exactly sure about the EDI requirements uh, there because these are API guidelines yeah. um, and these are specifically around scheduling. That's what the consortium is focused on. Um, but yeah, but if they want to reach out, um, more than happy to kind of, um, you know, um, try to understand the problem and uh, help out there. And, and Raj, before I let you go, what's what's next? When does this kind of move out of pilot phase? When do we see this basically in, in all TMSs? What does that road look like? Yeah, so I think that's the, the, the big question is, how do we actually get to critical mass? And I think 2024 is going to be that year, um, given just even the TMS customer, TMS providers who have signed up and they've, they've said they're going to release this API this year alone, I think we will actually hit critical mass. Because this is a very headish problem, meaning you know very few players control very large portions of the market, um, and then them and uh, them implementing the APIs would mean you know huge uh, leaps and bounds for us in the industry. So for uh, Uber Freight specifically, uh, we're going to be tweaking things in H1 and H2. We're going to be ex- exposing it as a public API um, to everyone else. That means carriers, brokers will be able to connect. Um, using those APIs and book at any one of those 1500 locations through the API. Um, very similarly, there are a lot of, you know, there's going to be quite a few of the other TMS providers who are going to be, uh, who are uh, working on their APIs right now as we speak. And there'll be a lot of announcements all the way from Q2 to, um, I want to say Q4. Uh, and knock on wood, hopefully by the end of the year, more than 50% of the market will be covered by that. All right. Big numbers, big ambitions. Let's see. Let's see them out. We'll check in with you later on during the year and see how this all plays out. In the meantime, reach out to Raj, reach out to Uber Freight and get them on the SSC. Good luck with the pilot. Thanks, Tim. Good to see you. Take it easy. All right, everybody. Meanwhile. 
Take a look at here. How things work says machinery to keep logs in place during transportation, thus avoiding final destination scenarios. Yeah, that iconic scene from Final Destination 2 with the logs in the front. Right in the strap work there. This is gonna is this gonna put all the strappers out of business? Is AI going too far? Jason McLaren says, I don't care how secure they are, I'm still not driving close to one. Yeah, I mentioned I was driving back, uh, I was on 75 for a long time yesterday, driving back from South Carolina. Always gotta make sure to move over when you see uh the log truck or the back the bad strap work, <laughs> especially when you rate it as often as I do. Eso B says, a whole generation still traumatized by one movie. Yeah, Final Destination 2 being that movie. VTX Truder says that's just what the logs want you to think, right? Making you think it's secure. And Randall Salazar said, who knew log transportation could be as thrilling as a horror movie? Man, I got to tell you, this world is a, I'm not saying it's a giant horror movie, but it's a visual, amazing world with giant machines. And maybe it's a sci-fi movie because electric trucks are getting a step closer. And the next gentleman I'm talking to just had an event that is here to push it one step further towards there. He's the founder and CEO over at Zine Solutions. Congratulations, first of all, on an amazing event. Introduce yourself to our wonderful audience. Really appreciate it, Tim. Thanks so much. And super pumped to be with you guys. Um, I know you guys have had the better half of Zeme here is Don Pieron in the past. So I'm hoping to dazzle you with uh, Zeme's updated uh, business plan here. We we build uh, infrastructure for fleets. We do it for light duty, medium duty, and heavy duty. Our big focus is, of course, medium and heavy duty uh, 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 fleets. Right now, we have a the largest commercial EV charging hub in the United States. It's right at LAX. We've got 78 DC fast charge ports. We've got 53 AC ports and a 10 megawatt interconnection. So we could charge, you know, a couple hundred trucks overnight and throughout the day. We could do about a thousand vehicles throughout the day. So uh, looking to staple these things across the country. Next move going to be a couple of port locations like Long Beach, Savannah, SeaTac, and Newark are next targets. You know, Paul, we're talking at a good time on a past couple of shows, especially in January. We were talking about new regulations in Southern California. You have where, but you also have the um, the Advanced Clean Air Act at the ports that had the no new diesels coming in. And there's a lot of anxiety because people are like, hey, where do I get the trucks? Where do I get the chargers? Right. Your company's out here to sort of answer that question to help with this big growing problem that's pushed both by interest and bo- and by regulation. There's two forces propelling this one forward. What was your event? You just had an awesome event let's start there in inglewood california so we started uh at this first location we secured a lease about two and a half years ago we put in our first six chargers at our own pocket and so what happened is we were able to get steel in the ground and the chargers energized within nine months then after that we were beholden to the process that everybody else is out there so waiting for the utility to come in and do the final installation get all of your uh, supply chain in place and then fully energize the site So what happened is in the beginning of the year, we fully energized every single charger, finally received every bit of equipment. And so what happened is that was the event. Uh, We've been operating out of there since December 2021, Um, really just understanding, you know, as you know, the vehicles are just premature. Even the big OEMs are still having glitchy problems. So our business model is house those vehicles with us. We do all the charging service maintenance, all the all the typical fleet management services that you would do at your own site. We just perform it for electric vehicles at our site. So the customer simply pulls in or their driver pulls in, picks up a fully charged, serviced, washed electric vehicle. They park their personal vehicle at the site. They go ahead, do their duty for the day, come back. We literally handle everything from A to Z. 
So it's a full uh, full service white glove service. So why are, why do you think fleets as a service and electrification as a service is becoming this fast emerging category? I hadn't, I hadn't really heard those terms too much until maybe the past couple of years. Yeah, everybody start, tries to run on these buzzwords. And the reality is, look, it, it's incredibly expensive. The product is premature. The chargers don't work all the time. So what happens is you really need a deep knowledge to really understand, first of all, the, the truck itself, and then, of course, the charger, and then the utility interaction. So Zeem is a cascading of you know deep vehicle knowledge, batteries, et cetera, charger knowledge, and then fleet management. And if you cascade all three together, what happens is large and small fleets can share that depot. And what happens is rather than have these huge upfront costs and take the technology risk on the chargers, the vehicles, et cetera, we take it all, right? We're very selective in the type of product that we'll buy. So if a customer comes to us and says, I need a class A truck that's going to run Dre um, out of the uh, airport at LAX and, and you know takes a run out to Inland Empire or takes a run to a cross dock down in Long Beach, we want to make sure that they're facilitated with the proper truck and you know we handle everything from there. So making sure that all the equipment is up, ready and running. The only thing the driver needs to think about is just getting in the vehicle and operating it. So there is technology flaws, as you know. So what we do is an additional service with all of our partners. So whether it's the charging company or the truck manufacturer, what we do is we come in and provide a backup. So if that truck goes down, and inevitably will be, uh, will go down as diesels do, but EVs right now are still early. We provide a backup where we deploy one of our employees, go ahead and swap out the electric truck that's down with a another vehicle, make sure that customer continues on their route. Um, and then we go ahead and sit with the vehicle and make sure it's dealt with. Very, very interesting. So, I mean, like whenever you're dealing with new tech, I don't care if it's VR headsets or EV trucks, right? There's going to be bottlenecks to scale. There's going to be uh, there's going to be passion. There's going to be a look towards the future, but there's also going to be some issues. What are the issues right now? What are the bottlenecks to scale? And why is it so important for companies like Zeem to offer like this type of service? So the, the number one bottleneck is power. You know, if you're a truck fleet and you say, okay, I need to start converting my my electric or my fleet to electric. The reality is in my mind, right? And I'm a former investment banker. If you have even half diesel and, and some CNG and other equipment in your fleet, and then suddenly you implement electric, it's, it's a whole other beast. So the challenge of getting power, the challenge of how do I manage this fleet versus my diesel fleet, you have to go all in. If you don't go all in, what happens is it's very expensive. You're going to trip all over the place. With Zine, the idea here is we take all the incentive around the trucks, the charging infrastructure, and again, we have a de facto fleet manager at our site who understands fleets and the operations. We bundle that all together, and what we do is we provide the service to the fleet the same way that they would operate out of their own uh, trucking uh, yard. Now, the idea here is locating as close as we possibly can to their operation so it's not so disruptive. It doesn't make sense for somebody to pick up their truck at 5 in the morning and drive 20 miles to go start their route. They need to be within a few mile radius. So the idea here is build these depots where a lot of this activity is happening. And the bottlenecks are, look, you know, let's be honest, truck, truck, trucking companies, they don't want to go electric. They shouldn't right now until they know the equipment works, until it actually is feasible and makes money. And I think that's where the policymakers and the government here in the United States, there's just a major disconnect. So for us, we're smart business people. We take, you know, the finance piece of this. And again, trucking, batteries, charging, utility interaction, and fleet management. And we sort of smashed this all together for our offering. And because we started December 2021, it wasn't a perfect operation. We learned quite a bit. So we know how to charge a, a car rental vehicle, uh, an autonomous vehicle, um, a box truck, a van, all the way up to tractors. We've been doing that now for a long time. So we've had tractors in our fleet now for over two years, collecting that data. 
and uh, you know, with multiple different OEMs. So what we do is rather than sort of plaster that everywhere publicly, um, I want to honor the privacy of my customers. We share that information directly with them. They're taking the risk on this product. So what we want to do is make sure they understand how they could use that to grow their own business, not necessarily share that with the world. Uh, so that way we, we you know, sit on somebody's nice little list of uh, friendly little EV companies that care about the environment, very much care about the environment. But first, we lean forward with feasibility. If it doesn't make money, it doesn't make sense to do. Now, Paul, you're the founder. Why did you start the company? It's interesting. Um, you know, I started off as an investor in the sector and I went into, you know, one of these warm and fuzzy companies that said, I'm going to make electric trucks. They're three times the cost of diesel, but everybody's going to do it because they want to save the environment. Um, I learned the hard way because I was the investment banker who <clears throat> put all the money into the company, did that on behalf of other customers, institutional and high net worth. And it was right at the same exact time that Tesla went public. So um, there was uh, some mismanagement within that organization. But in that timetable, I was able to have a deep dive into the vehicle itself, the batteries. I got to understand a lot of the early pioneers in the industry. So when you're dumb enough to fund some of these companies, Tim, uh, in the earliest days, you get everybody from the truck guys to the charger guys and everybody in between begging you for capital. So I got to see every single company, just about every company that's out there today trying to do something in EV was uh, uh, something I've seen early on, uh, looked at a lot of their business plans as an investor. So I think I have a really interesting view about the entire sector. Yeah, hey, good enough answer. Good, good as answer as any. And I have to agree with you. I mean, those are the problems I, I always hear from. Uh, I like how you kind of there's a there's a wishful thinker side and then there's a very sort of rational side. And trucking, and if you want to make money in trucking, is very centered on that rational side. You, you know, it needs to make sense for business operations. We need actual solutions to deal with these problems. It, it can't just be a signature on a piece of paper. So I think all of that makes sense. What does the future of this sort of road look like? How do you how do you guys expand from here? We always talk about this grid bottle. How do we get beyond that? How do we get the power to do this? So it's a really good question. You know, our investor is called Arclight Capital Partners. They are the largest, second largest utility asset owner in the U.S. So when the government comes in and starts shutting all these plants down and says coal fire, natural gas, you know, we need to transition to a cleaner future. Uh, these investors are the smartest on the planet of acquiring those assets. And what they've been doing they already have a lot of the power. So Zima is coming in and building at the power plant. So what you're going to find in Long Beach, and I look forward to having you there, Tim, and your team, is taking a huge power plant, turning that into an EV charging hub. Right now, there is genuinely a huge problem with power. So what you're going to find with Zima in the future is we've identified where that power is, and we've understood and learned about how to put in large EV charging hubs at those locations. And they happen to be Newark Port, Long Beach Port, right in the areas of uh, Brooklyn, Bronx, and Queens, where most of the activity is happening. And they have over 30 of these across the country. So you're going to find us uh, really coming in, optimizing, and, and, and looking to leverage that kind of power. Secondarily, you know, we, we had a very large outbound calling campaign. You've interviewed Don Peer in the past. Don and his team literally performed the largest outbound uh, campaign for the EV industry on the planet that I know of. We made over 1.7 million phone calls. We've engaged 16,000 fleets that have come to us and said, okay, if you're crazy enough to fund this and you'll come back and it's Parapasu, we're better than the cost of my diesel, I'll give it a try. And if it works, then I would look at you as our trusted partner to convert our fleet over time. So what's happened is go out, staple these out economically. Don't chase, you know, the puffery money that's out there. You know, to date, we are the biggest commercial EV depot in the U.S., Tim, and we haven't received a single penny of incentive yet. It's coming, but it's not there. Um, so what happens is there's a lot of sort of fallacy that's out there about how to 
drive these things forward. So Zeme has been figuring this out, build these depots, uh, templatize what we're doing, do it at the lowest cost, and make sure that we're actually accommodating what these customers need, not fluffy solar panels and battery storage and all sorts of stuff that makes the politicians excited. Let's come in and provide a, a, a an actual model for truckers that they could look at and actually makes the money over time. Yeah, are ports, you mentioned ports a few times. Are those clearly like the first attack vector? Is that the most sort of sense, at least in like commercial trucking, we're talking semis or, or day trucks in the drayage industry? Very much. You know, the one thing about Zeme is we're not, you know, very out there on social media, et cetera, and really at my direction. What I want to do is open a bunch of these, make sure we operate and understand that Savannah is going to be different than SeaTac is going to be different than Newark, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. So what needs to happen is once we understand those nuances, share it with the fleet and and don't hit them over the head. You know, the one thing we do is compared to some of our competition, you know, our pricing is like 50 percent of what some of these guys are putting out there. So you're not going to grow an industry doing that. You're going to piss people off. And so at the end of the day, we want to be very forward. We want to be educational. We want them to understand that this is a transition, that it's going to happen. And of course, hydrogen and other things play into this. You know, we're not sitting here saying the end all is EV. But if you have 150, 200 mile route or less, um, no doubt in my mind, it makes sense. Again, I'm a, a, an investment banker in my DNA. Um, I'm not doing anything unless this makes money and pencils out and it's scalable, scalable across the country. So the way that I'm looking at this is, you know, not riding the wave on ESG, et cetera. It's riding the wave on, give you predictable cost, do it at a flat rate, do it right where all the activity is. And then in three to five years, when the product proves itself out, we'll take our depots and build them right at these customer sites, right? Until then, everybody's concerned that this is a fad. It may come and go. I don't believe that. Uh, but I think at the end of the day, we'll use our capital to go ahead and build that infrastructure, provide the service, and then show everybody that we're the best at doing it and at the most economic, uh, uh, in the most economic way. Hey, look, little cowbell for you guys. Zeme Solutions, check them out. Congratulations on your ribbon cutting. I look to see what you guys build out there and, uh, and great to hear it. Thanks for stopping by the show. Thanks for having me. Really appreciate it. Take care. All right, we got to tip the band really quick here. Dynamic Logistics gives you total control of your entire shipping operations. Live location and status updates every 15 minutes and the ability to combine multiple orders into a single load, leading to significant savings. Check them out at dynamiclogistics.com. That's logistics with an X. All right, write the strap work really quick here, people. Speaking of boating, Julia says, you just can't get quality supportive fruit leather anymore. Mashed Potato says, what the hell were they doing on the boat when it was lifted? Look at that guy. He goes right into the railing. I cannot be good for your ribs. John Conrad says, need a spreader bar bad. Of course they do. They need to be on land, John. David Bowman says, or David Borman said, the Ford strap was not far enough. Also, never lift the boat with people on it. Also, should have been using a boat lift, not a crane. Anthony Heward said, the guy on the right that drills the railing always makes me cringe. Ouch. Why would you need to be in the boat? Strap work rated? No go. Charles Tomey, if you think a professional is too expensive, just wait until you hire an amateur. A professional would have cost a lot less and you wouldn't have broken ribs. Hey, true words haven't been spoken. Let's talk about some more true words, though. Emissions aren't just for semi-trucks. They're also on the ocean. They're also in boating. And Constantine, Comadroma CEO over at VesselBot, CEO and founder over there, is here with us. And they did a whole report on this thing. Meeting him for, the, I think, one of the first times. Hello, introduce yourself, young man. <laughs> not that young, not that young. But uh, in heart, I definitely am, so... Uh, pleasure meeting you guys. This is Konstantin Komodromos. 
out of Athens, Greece, oh. and Vesselbot, founder and CEO of Vesselbot. Well, for people who have not heard of Vesselbot, what do you all do? We use uh, primary sources to measure emissions coming from uh, all transportation modes. So we are, in essence, in a position to um, identify with high accuracy how each voyage, uh, each um, uh, truckload, each um, shipment of, uh, of uh, a container emitted emissions and is responsible for certain emissions that were carried with third-party uh, assets. So whatever is being carried with a third party for which we don't have information on, on the related emissions, we can accurately measure that. Very interesting. Why did you start the company? How come you want to start tracking uh, emissions? Or did the company even start out doing that? What's kind of, give me the, the long and short on, um, on how this all came together. Um, no, actually, we started off quite a few years ago um, by doing something totally different in the bulk maritime uh, industry. And then we suddenly realized that um, the data that we were producing out of those uh, out of those services were something that could be used to uh, enable better decisions in regards to in regards to transportation. So we started using technology that was built and um, used it in the favor of better visibility on emissions that um, didn't exist and that was purely based on average data and uh, conversion factors that do not actually depict the real, the real situation of emissions uh, transportation. So, yeah, we can, uh, we can do a bit of good to our world and live a more sustainable uh, sustainable environment for our children or for uh, anyone that is left behind afterwards so well we have some great data to look at from your report and we're going to get to it in a second but overall what mode is the biggest offender in emissions you said you track all modes which one is just doing the worst out there um, uh, it would be air for obvious reasons because because the uh, the, the carrying capacity there is much lower. As a result, what, what happens is that more emissions are being attributed to, to every parcel being shipped or every pilot being shipped, whatever is being shipped is more uh, less quantities, which is reflected into higher emissions. So air is the, um, the biggest polluter, if you like, as a mode of transportation. How about boats? Are boats, they look like they carry a ton of uh, a ton of oil to get across the ocean. They look gigantic, but they hold a lot of stuff. Yeah, correct. And, and that's the bigger, the biggest, the, re, uh, the biggest reason that um, they are the most efficient in regards to to emissions. So the ocean transportation is the least emitter of emissions uh, FCDs being operated today. Let's take a look at some of this data. This first chart here looks at average kilograms of CO2 admitted per TEU ship per vessel class. Now, before I ask you for some insight on this, why, why the report that you guys just put out? What were you trying to determine anyway? Uh, I'll tell you, it's a nice, uh, nice uh, question that you are raising. Um, look, we, we want to start um, um, to uh, increase people's interest and the visibility that exists 
in this this specific market in this domain. So our effort is to start bringing more visibility to the general and, and, uh, environment and the in the more bigger picture of uh, of the market because people today do not know about what is going on. Um, as I mentioned in the past, usually people used uh, companies. Uh, researchers who are using average emissions data. And just to give you an understanding, uh, usually people were going and were saying, what is the distance that this mode uh, traveled? And they were using the relevant conversion factor per kilometer. So they were saying per kilometer, the, a, a vessel would be consuming five, uh, five grams of, uh, of emissions, would be emitting five grams of emissions. Um, now, with our report, we are trying to bring more visibility and, and provide more insights into how the market is performing and in regards to transportation and what are the emissions that are being emitted because of different modes. Uh, in this specific report, you will see, you can see the emissions emitted by uh, ocean transportation. We intend to release something for uh, trucks as well. Uh, should be relatively, uh, relatively soon ready uh, that one as well. So, to to explain a bit to our viewers, what we do is we get primary data. This means that we've got a digital twin for every vessel, which um, uh, we get its actual uh, distance covered, its actual route, the speed that the vessel has been uh, has been operating, how many containers were loaded on each. Uh, on each uh, vessel on a specific voyage basis. So we got the weather conditions, satellite weather conditions, that allows us to be able to provide granular information on mm -hmm. each voyage mm -hmm. and respectively on the market itself in a holistic mode. So what you see here in the report is that depiction of this specific time of the year, 2023, where we've analyzed the different uh, trade lanes, the different flags, uh, yes. Sizes of vessels, yeah. and so on and so forth. Let's take a look. Put that chart back up here. So, what is this first one telling us? This is about vessel classes. What do we learn from vessel classes here? Look, uh, as it is evident here, you can see that um, we've got um, uh, pretty big fluctuations, and each vessel size has a different, um, um, different, um, uh, if you like, uh, emissions intensity impact. But what we can see mostly here is that all the classes have uh, have seen uh, kind of uh, a reduction. So yeah. this is on the positive side of things. Yes, well, unless you're following the freight market, because the, the freight market, the, the better the CO2 emissions, the worse the freight market might be. But that kind of brings up another oh. question. Is it just getting better because there's less ships moving, which means maybe it's not. It's just volume of ships. But let's look at the emissions by flag state. Who's the biggest offender over here? Oh, no. Uh-oh. Uh-oh. That's not the United States, is it? Is that us? That's it is. Number one. It is. Unfortunately, it is. Uh, I'll tell you, you are, you, are, you are raising two important topics here. Yeah. Uh, and one, is, um, one is the operational patterns. Operational patterns are quite important, and you are, very, um, uh, you are spot on by pointing that when the market goes bad, the emissions become better. And this is because um, carriers, in order to, to reduce their costs, 
our views are uh, steaming, they are sailing with slower speeds, they are slow steaming, which um, to a certain extent reduces significantly emissions because the speed consumption curve is a non-linear, has a non-linear relationship. This means that the slower to a, to a point, the slower you go, the more and the less a, a, a consumption you will have, which means less emissions. So very correctly pointed out by you, because in the last year we ha haven't had great performance in the freight, we've seen a reduction in speed. Uh, there is another graph where you can see that, where the, there is a significant speed reduction, which ends up in better uh, fuel, less fuel consumption and emissions. Now, as far as the flag is concerned, um, it really depends on the age of vessels. So age of vessels does apparently play its role. And one of the reasons that the US flag has this performance is because a big number of vessels are older vessels, which means less technologically advanced. Operationally, they have, um, they, because of their age, they consume more fuel, etc., etc. So this means that they, they engage in more local trades. So the, the optimization of remember I, I said um, speed consumption curve is a non-linear and is a U-stick. So the very slow speeds consume a lot of uh, fuel. So if you have um, regional regional uh, trades, this means in most cases you would have higher emissions because of higher consumptions. So quite a few reasons that this might be reflected into um, the, the fact that we've got the United States with the higher emissions. Higher now, emissions. Before, before I let you go, short, short of a bad freight market or a freight recession, like what, what would be, um, through your data, what do you think would be the most impactful thing in ocean shipping towards reducing emissions? Look, um, it would really depend on a number of things. Um, the the problem with the problem with the maritime industry is the fact that it is quite slow to adjust in I don't know alternative fuel, for example, because you order a vessel today it will not be in the water after it wouldn't be launched before two or three years. So it's not easy to to change the the fundamentals of the market and the type of fuel that is being used. So it would delay substantially. Um, we would see this impact coming 2027, 2028. If there is sufficient um, sufficient fuel uh, provision, alternative fuel provision, so that these vessels can consume ammonia, uh, hydrogen, uh, LNG, whatever that might be. Um, I think the, the most imminent way that we could see optimization is through operational optimization. And this is by shippers and carriers making optimal decisions on um, how to better ship their cargo and who should be my carrier of choice based on the parameters I've got in my, uh, as commercial parameters. So if I am a shipper A and I want to ship goods by um, ocean, which carrier schedules are optimal to uh, minimize my, my emissions, which carriers are 
um, the ones that are optimal because they've got their lowest emissions uh, intensity. So making optimal decisions on the carrier selection or on the mode selection or on the network selection so that they can make better decisions to reduce their emissions footprint. So, yeah, yeah. no, I, I agree. Sometimes the best sort of tech or technology you can make is either good decision-making on your own or empowering some tech to make those route optimizations for you. But it, it has to start with someone allowing it, it to happen. Um, this is a great report. Where can people go and find it if they want to read it and get the data out of it? Um, our, uh, our domain, uh, vesselbot.com, is the easiest way forward. And apparently, all social media, we are on, on all social media and LinkedIn. Very good. Yeah. Awesome. Constantine, thank you so much for your time today. Vesselbot, go check them out. Go check out the report. And I look forward to the one you do on semi-truck fleets. Can't wait. Thank you so much today. Thank you very much. Thank you. Bye-bye. Take care. All right, everybody. Elsewhere. All right, bro, I got, I got your breeder right here. It's got the Apple Vision Pro. Uh, Everyone says this is uh, a product looking for a problem. But here's a use case right here. What if you're at Chipotle and you don't know how to make a burrito? You can watch a YouTube video on how to construct one. I know how to do it. Come on, man, I gotta go. I got you, bro. Hold on, hold on. Canna Advocates says work productivity will go down the drain. Cannabis thinks that's going to make work productivity go down the drain. Cannabis, it is helping him make a burrito. Can't you see that right there? The burrito you might be uh, selling due to your advocacy, might I say. 2020 elections were, wow, I'm not going to read their whole name. That's a little politically charged. It says, we're never leaving the toilet again, are we? I can see I can see some of you on there. You guys watching What the Truck on the toilet with the Apple Vision Pro on? Wash your hands before you make the burrito. Joshua Shah says, really don't think I'd find a reason to want one of these yet. That's a life-changing experience right there. Yeah, I mean, people have talked about how, like, in warehouses, for example, if they could pull SKUs and stuff, they can make it much cheaper. I mean, you're not going to spend $3,500 on a headset for a warehouse worker that only goes for two hours. But, I mean, at some point, there could be AR glasses. Sure, why not? And Donald, too, says... I want a target on the toilet urinal so I can check my accuracy. Some guys just want to use this thing to go to the bathroom with. I don't know. It's Liz Wayne, founder and CEO over at Able Transport Solutions. Liz, where's your Apple Vision Pro? You know what? I'm an Android user, so oh, no. I will be the last you'll find you're, with that one. You're not in the Walt Garden. You think you think you could put these on like maybe some of the brokers or some people inside Able Transport and it, it would like enhance operations? You know, possibly. I uh, belong to Vistage, a CEO group, and somebody brought in some sweet glasses last month where you plug them into your computer, your laptop, and you have three monitors in the glasses. Well, that's so what they say can- the Vision Pro does, yeah. Yeah, so supposedly these things are more like five hundred dollars. Uh, they were pretty cool. A little, a little more, a little more economical. You know, if, if we had cool tech like this, we could encourage the youth to join this industry. But I don't know if, if you were like me. I, I, my dad was in this industry. My kids, they see truck stuff all the time. So they at least take some interest. They've made a few truck Legos. They've made a, tr- a few truck brain flakes. I see your son. You've started indoctrinating him. You posted this on LinkedIn. How do you keep the family in the biz, Liz? What's your parenting corner advice here? You know, you point out the trucks on the road. That's always fun. Although my husband and I have more fun with that one than my kids, to be honest. <laughs> I've got a 22-year-old that doesn't seem to want in the business, which is weird also. So I don't know. 
Is he the one who's like the king of Cutco knives that met Will Jenkins recently? He is. Yes, that's him. Well, maybe he'll be on like the retail side of the supply chain, Liz. Maybe, maybe. Liz, for people who don't know, what's Able Transport? Who are you? Yeah, we're a freight brokerage out of Omaha, Nebraska, specializing in flatbed heavy haul freight, serving the nation's infrastructure and construction industries. You say you like ugly freight. Why do you like ugly freight? So I like ugly freight, too. Someone has to like it. Yeah, because it's complicated. It's fun. Um, I found within the industry, that's kind of where the cream of the crop bubbles up. And we just get to work with some really, really good people, solve some unique problems. So I find it more fun myself. I, look, you bring the fun. You bring the energy. I've I've met you in person. And you actually put a great people follow her, by the way, if you're not on LinkedIn, go on LinkedIn. If you are on LinkedIn, follow Liz Wayne. She she drops some hot takes out there, some things some people need to hear. And there's a big problem. There's that eight hundred million dollar fraud problem. And there's a lot of companies that have popped up, especially recently, that promise to vet carriers. However, I've heard the other side of this as well. And it's always a little bit struggle for me. Do I cover this company? Are they hurting somebody? Because I've had people reach out to me and say, hey, my small carrier got flagged on here. We didn't do anything wrong. And now I can't move freight from such and such a broker due to one of these programs. So you posted, I'll say it again. If the fraud solution harms the legitimate carrier, it's not the solution. We can do better. Elaborate. Gosh, there's so much to unpack here. So Fraud's been in the industry for a long time. I mean, we were dealing with double brokers for 20 years ago. It, it was excessive during the last recession in 08, 09. We see it even worse now. It feels like this time it's a bit more organized. It's a larger operation. And so kind of like four or five years ago, started to realize that the Government was going to be slow to help us. And in their defense, FMCSA has made movement in this last six months, even that we haven't seen in a long time. So hopefully that continues. But it kind of became clear that industry was going to have to rise to the challenge and solve this problem. Um, So it's been great. We've seen so many things pop up in the last 12 to 18 months that really have the potential to solve the problem and, and revolutionize the industry. Um, but I just think we need to sharpen some of the solutions up a little bit because they are harming the legitimate guy, like we said. So on one hand, I'm so, so grateful for them. And on the other hand, um, I think we've got to be careful to put the vetting process completely in the hands of technology. So that debate, that's a whole separate debate that's been going on forever. As we know, technology versus the human broker. And I think sort of as we leave 2023, we realize we need both. Everybody's kind of on the page of we need really smart, talented people with really good technology um, at their disposal. And so ultimately, I think that's the solution for this. Like, I want my people using the information and vetting their own carriers, Um, because as we know, some legitimate good guys are are being put out. And so, you know, you've told some stories. I think the first one I saw on LinkedIn was Ingrid Brown. Like, guys, why am I getting rejected for not having enough inspections? Isn't that a good thing? I mean, she's the face of FMCSA's safety program. She has her name on a truck stop and she's getting rejected on some loads. After my post last week, I got a message from 
a woman who's married to an owner op, 30 years owning his truck, 3 million accident-free miles, $250,000 in cargo coverage, having trouble booking loads because someone's got him flagged. Uh, so it's a real problem. Yeah, no, I know. I know another one. She uh, she drives around with two dogs on the road. She's a she's a great lady. She's been running for years. Veteran trucker. No accidents. And she's the one who tabbed me, too. She's actually one of the first ones. You mentioned Ingrid, too. Ingrid's another one who kind of shined a light. And I think that, like, it's important for for us as leaders and me as someone who puts information out there to um because everyone wants to clap. it. it's like, yeah, we're stopping the problem. But like, is it? the right vaccine to the solution or what, like what's the mortality rate? How many people are, are getting harmed by this because like are catching strays from a program? What, so what is your advice? What do you do to make sure you're fighting against this problem? Because ultimately I understand why people run these solutions and it's like, look, if there's, you know, some casualties of war, there's casualties of war, but ultimately if my shippers and my partners are protected, that's more important than a small carrier hurt. So what do you do? You know, we're using tools. We subscribe to three different tools that we utilize. Um, We've had some shippers recently force us into using some tools that we probably wouldn't have purchased on our own. Um, You know, we're trying to advise those shippers and, and, you know, let them know the steps that we take all the time so that they feel that their freight is safe and accounted for. Um, You know, an interesting part of this is... We've got to make sure that people are speaking up and not cutting off their nose to spite their face and kind of keeping a long-sighted view on not only this problem, but the overall industry in general. Because what is it? It's 90 to 95% of motor carriers have less than five trucks. Mm. The brokers don't exist without those guys. And those guys don't exist without the brokers. And so I think that we need to keep the... I think we need to ask ourselves, what what do we want this industry to look like in 20 years? Do we still want there to be opportunity for the small trucking company? Um, without them, the freight brokerage industry looks entirely different. Without them, that digital broker becomes a thing. The, the humans step back and, and a lot of our jobs are eliminated. That's not what I want for my company or the industry. Um, It's not what I want for the owner ops. I want these guys to have that avenue to entrepreneurship um, and to run their own business. And so while I'm so grateful for all of the solutions, we just have to sharpen them up a little bit together through these conversations. Over owner operators keep America moving. Owner operators, small trucking comps are what drive this nation. What do you have to say to, to brokers who, who don't realize the importance of owner operators? How important are owner operators to brokerages? They are so important. We, you know, some broker carrier relationships are contentious, some are not at all. They're very strong. Either way, all are extremely codependent. And so, we need each other. And what's in what's good for the goose is good for the gander in this case. And we take care of them. They will take care of us. Um, we cannot leave them by the wayside. Even if you want to come from a very selfish, pragmatic place, we need them to be a viable business. And so for whatever reason you want to embrace this, you need to embrace it for sustainability. 
you know, we always talk about relationships and all these topics sort of tie back from that. You're going to be able to better vet your carriers if you actually know your carriers. You're going to be able to better vet your brokers if you know them. I'm sans fraud. There's a lot of that and duplicious activity. But in general, if you know them, um, you're going to have a better time in the market if you have good relationships. It's been very contentious, though. How do you maintain those relationships? And what do you what do you what's the outlook for the market as we move into the second half? Oh, gosh. Well, if I had a crystal ball, yeah. <laughs> uh, that would be great. Hopefully, as we move into the second half of this year, we see the market pick up. Um, but as far as how to handle the owner op, so I'm actually in the middle of a survey um, with TruckStop now, and we're going to present the results at TIA conference in April to find out what the owner ops want brokers to know. And you know, but what's kind of surfacing up there is they want all of the information. They want to be set up for success. Um, they they want opportunity. Um, they want to do a good job. By and large, everyone wants to do a good job for each other. And we cause a lot of each other's failures. Um, so I just encourage other companies and brokers to put yourself in their shoes you know, what information would you need to be successful? Um, another kind of space that I think brokers can do better is in accessorials. We're seeing a lot of that online as the market constricts. Um, you know, drivers are left on the, with the short end of that stick a lot of the time. Uh, so just, I mean, back to the golden rule, right? Treat people like you would want to be treated. Liz, how do you keep your uh, staff motivated the day after the Super Bowl? How do you keep productivity from getting destroyed? You know, we're in Nebraska, so yeah. there's a lot of Chiefs fans here. So I think we are okay. Okay. Well, wouldn't they be happy, though? They'd be on like a uh, – they might have had partied a little late into the night. They might be on like a five-second delay. They might be, but, you know, that's okay. I think the worst comes next month, right? Isn't that what they say? March Madness brings oh, could the be. least productivity see, on that Thursday and Friday or whatever. No, you're kind of right. You know, so I'm from New England. So, like, when the Patriots win the Super Bowl at the time or when whenever a New England team does anything, like, it's it's just a huge event in Boston. But, like, out here in the South, college football is a big event. But, like, NFL, nothing. I heard like maybe one person mention the Super Bowl. I think Taylor Swift probably gets talked about more. It's like Georgia Bulldogs down here, everybody. Well, Liz, hey, people want to follow you online. They they have ugly frayed. How, who should reach out to you? How do they reach out to you? Yeah, find me on LinkedIn or at abletransportsolutions.com. Wow. What's, your, uh, what's the ugliest piece of freight you've ever seen in your life? Oh my gosh, we did a really cool project last year where we moved a whole rock crushing plant, like a mining type of operation. So that's pretty cool. Um, yeah, I'd say recently that's the coolest. That's going to do it. That's going to Well, Liz, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for coming on the show. I appreciate your time today. Thank you. Appreciate you, Dooner. Take it easy. All right. And I appreciate all you for tuning in. Hit the music. Maybe we'll get out of here a minute early. Thank you for finding me. You can find me on Twitter at Timothy Dooner. You can find this show at FW What the Truck on social media. Where are we? TikTok, Spotify, all those places. You want audio only? Just look at What the Truck wherever you get your podcast. You want to watch our ugly faces in HD? Go to Freight Waves YouTube channel. Subscribe over there. We got a whole playlist. And of course, the live shows happen on Freightways social channels Monday, Wednesday, Friday at noon Eastern time. All right, everybody, take care. Don't be a stranger.